Guys, I'm so glad um, for a church that just does missions so well. You guys love, you're very active, and thank you for Pastor Andrew bringing focus to that here this morning. Uh, I will try to keep my remarks brief. I've already talked once today, it feels like, and so we'll just uh, try to keep it brief. I will say this, um, we're beginning a new sermon series this week, and it's going to extend into the summer. We're going to take a break from Mother's Day and Father's Day. I want to especially encourage um, moms and dads and their calling before the Lord on those Sundays, but otherwise, we're going to be spending time in the parables of Jesus. And I really enjoy the parables of Jesus uh, because who doesn't like a good story? Uh, Jesus was, among many things, a great storyteller. And uh, if you've gotten to know me at all, I love to just lean over the back of a pickup truck and start swapping stories. It's really good. And Jesus knew how to tell a story in a way that penetrated the heart, in, in a way that maybe just stating the facts wouldn't. And so this morning, what I want to do to kick this off is start, as logic would require, with Jesus' first parable. Uh, we'll spend time maybe another Sunday saying why late in his ministry, Jesus, for the most part, did not speak in parables. It's a bit of a misunderstanding about Jesus that he spoke pretty much all the time in parables. If you read, for example, the Sermon on the Mount, he uses some very colorful illustrations in there, but there's not a parable to be found in the Sermon on the Mount. His teaching in parables happened at a very interesting point in his ministry. I don't have time this morning to get into that. Um, but we'll talk about that in future weeks as well. Why exactly did Jesus suddenly switch and start speaking to people in this way? But we're going to be hanging out this morning in Luke chapter 8, verses 4 through 15. This is a story that, of a parable that's well-known and cherished by believers down through the ages. It's the story of the sower, the parable of the sower. And Jesus, this is how it goes, beginning in verse 4 of Luke chapter 8. And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot. And the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock as it grew up. It withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand." Permit me just a few general observations about these parables. First, let's define what a parable is. A parable is just this ingeniously simple word picture drawn from a real-life scenario that illuminates a profound spiritual lesson. A parable is very similar to other similar, I guess, literary devices, if we want to call them that. A fable is similar to a parable. An allegory is very similar to a parable. A, a fable, though, is not drawn from a real-life scenario. If you've ever read Aesop's fables, you've got 
talking animals and magical happenings, usually rather than drawing an, an analogy from real life, it creates an alternate reality to make its point. That's kind of what fables and fairy tales do. So a parable is distinct from that genre, if you will, a fairy tale, fable, in that it draws from real life. An allegory, like I think some really famous allegories, if you've ever read um, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. C.S. Lewis wrote that as a very purposeful allegory meant to reflect biblical truths that we find in the Bible. In an allegory, nearly every character and every happening is symbolic and laden with meaning. It's, multi, it's, it's, it's densely layered and multidimensional, and allegory makes lots of points. But a parable is designed to be very simple in that it's delivering one or maybe at the most two main points. And you get way off in the weeds if you start trying to assign meaning and significance to every detail. Like if this was not a parable that Jesus was telling but an allegory, we might agonize over what's the difference between the seed that's trampled underfoot and devoured by the birds. What do those two things represent? And how are those different from one another? And on and on and on we go. That's, don't do that with a parable. <laughs> There's just one main point here. And that's really what Jesus is trying to communicate. Don't get bogged down in all these side uh, symbolism questions, because that's not the point of it. And that's going to be very important as we go on, uh, because what results if you do that are some really strange ideas about what the parable is trying to convey. And this is going to be important to keep in mind in the weeks ahead, because what we're going to be looking for when we take up these parables is the main point. What is Jesus driving at here? I think one of the most common misperceptions about Jesus' parables is the idea that the reason why Jesus spoke in parables was to make hard, complicated truths clear and easier to grasp by reframing them in simple stories drawn from real life. It's almost like this is a very complicated idea. I'm going to package it in a simple story so that a simple-minded person like Josh Tate can more easily grasp it. I think this is kind of the idea I've always had about parables, but the problem with this idea is that when Jesus himself explained why he taught in parables, he gave pretty much the opposite reason. It says, then the disciples came to him and said, why do you speak to them in parables? Why are you doing this? And he answered to them, to you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given. I'm drawing this from a parallel account, by the way, in Matthew 13. I read earlier from Luke 8. This is uh, Matthew giving his take on the same thing. For the one who has, more will be given, and he will have in abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. So what Jesus is doing here is he's saying they hear the words with their natural ears, but they don't hear it with their spirit. Essentially, he's saying that while the parables do illustrate and clarify truth for those who, as Jesus put it, have ears to hear, 
they purposefully hide and make less plain those same truths to those who oppose and reject the truth of Jesus and his claims. So in other words, the parables are a judgment on people who had willfully rejected him. They'd heard, they'd rejected it, and now the parables are a form of judgment from God to obscure the life-giving truths that they said no to. Parables save some while hardening others. The symbolism of a parable hides its meaning while making it plain to others. That This is by design. It's the twofold purpose of why Jesus taught in this way. Anyone who does not possess the discipline or the desire or the humility to seek out Jesus' meaning won't, but those who do will. So when pressed to explain why he taught in this way, Jesus said the parables hide truth from those who are self-righteous, self-satisfied, and too proud to learn from him. But simultaneously, it makes truth plain and more obvious to those who come to Jesus in a posture of needy reliance on him. I shared in the midweek email this past week that when I was a kid growing up at bedtime, my dad would give us these old cassette tapes from old-time radio programs, and I would listen to those ad nauseum. I mean, I, my favorite was Jack Benny. I could, Jack Benny could make me laugh reading the phone book. We also had some cassette tapes. This isn't really old-time radio, but I had a bunch of Bob Newhart albums, loved Bob Newhart. Um, and I was sharing in the midweek email how one week he came to us and gave us a new cassette tape for our bedtime listening. And it was the pineapple story by Otto Koning. <laughs> and it, he said it's about a missionary. And in my little kid brain, I instantly went, mm, that's not going to be good, <laughs> right? Like I think to a child's brain, the problem with vacation Bible school is that every word gets progressively worse. Like you start with vacation, Bible's okay, school, vacation Bible school. So that's, you know, I'll be honest, I've changed now dramatically. Um, but when I was a little kid, that's just honestly where I was at. And so when he said this is a missionary story, my first instinct was just, oh, man, no, 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 no. But out of love for my father, <laughs> I gave it a listen, and it was hilarious. Not only was it funny, but it was powerfully convicting. The Pineapple Story by Otto Koning. You can look it up. Uh, there's some examples on, you, on YouTube. Uh, but the lessons from that story stick, stick with me, and I think about them way more. And this is very discouraging to me as a pastor than sermons that I've heard. Otto Koenig in his story um, married rich, deep biblical truths about what it is to be a disciple of Jesus, a sincere from the heart follower of his who must give up things to be a follower of Jesus. That really rammed home because it came packaged in a real-life story. Jesus knows this, and it's one of the reasons why I'm so excited to take up parables with all of us. And so we come to this parable this morning, and I'm going to try to be very brief. I already read the parable itself at the beginning of our time together, but Jesus does kind of a rare thing in connection with this parable. Most often, Jesus lets the parable stand without any further explanation. He'll come to the end of the parable, and he'll say, those who have ears, let them hear. Kind of like, do with this what you will. Just throws it out there. But here, uh, not exclusively here, but pretty rare, his disciples do corner him afterwards, and they say to him, we don't, 
We're not picking up what you were laying down back there. We, we want to understand what you mean by this story. And so Jesus, when pressed, does explain to the disciples what he meant when he said about the four soils, the seed that falls on the path, the seed that falls on the rocky ground, the seed that falls among the thorns, and the seed that falls on the good soil. We pick it up in verse 11. And Jesus said to them, now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they heard the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, they fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature." As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. And then skipping down to verse 18, Jesus concludes the matter with this. He has another parable in between, two-verse parable in 16 and 17. But in verse 18, he says, Take care then how you hear, for to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. Uh, you've all heard the term broadcast. Uh, that term comes to us from ancient agriculture. Yeah, in olden days, people who were farmers would wear a pouch and filled with seed, and when they'd go out in the fields, they would take from the pouch and they would broadcast the seed. They would fling it in a wide, arcing throw, and this would more or less evenly distribute the seed across the ground that they wanted to cultivate. That's what broadcasting is. But when you broadcast, the seed will inevitably fall in varying places. It's kind of like with a song that goes out. When they broadcast a song on the radio, there might be a million ears that receive that song, and some absolutely hate it. And some are like, this is my jam, turn it up. And this broadcasting is indiscriminate in that way. If you just take a big handful of seed and broadcast it, it falls in these different places, and that's the idea. But it is worthy to no worth noting that nothing is said in this parable about the skill of the sower. The key difference between the seed that bears a hundredfold harvest and the seed that's devoured by the birds has nothing to do with the method the sower uses when he casts the seed. Nothing is also said about the quality of the seed. The seed that thrives and survives and bears fruit is the same quality seed that goes on to get choked out with weeds. This is not a parable about becoming a better sower. This is not a parable about the limitations of the seed. This is a parable with one point, and that is the heart that receives the seed. Really, it's wrapped up in this thing Jesus says in verse 18, which is, take care then how you hear. Pay attention to how you hear these words that I'm saying. The church today has this terrible tendency to adopt all kinds of strange and 
uh, even unbiblical methods of reaching the lost because they think that by doing these things, they might be able to get a better response from hard hearts, stony hearts, weedy hearts. And so they come up with all these new strategies. In other words, they think the problem is with the sower. The problem is the sower. We're going to change how we sow. No more of this broadcasting, the simple truth of the gospel. We need to strategically, surgically target stony people, weedy people, and um, the other one, hard people. (laughs) Got lost in there for a second. Some actually alter the seed. They do away with the more aggressive bits. Anything hard or unpopular, out of vogue, anything that sounds insensitive to the sensibilities of this current cultural moment, let's change the Word of God to land softer on the ears of people living today. Let's alter the seed. That's the problem. They don't talk much about sin or repentance or the necessity of the cross. They repackage the gospel as another self-improvement tool, among others, or make it the means to some this-worldly benefit. They might do away with the gospel altogether. Some do not broadcast seed at all. They might think that a great harvest would be a good thing, but they see no place for themselves personally in the effort. Or perhaps they imagine they're not skilled enough to do it. Or perhaps they think there might be some better use for the field than to put it under cultivation. I think some people would rather do a lot of things with the field than farm it. This reminds me of that theme song to Green Acres, right? Green Acres is the place to be. No, okay. Living is the life for me. Land spreading out. Keep Manhattan, just give me that countryside. It's one of the more interesting theme songs because, and it's really the only one I can think of where the main characters in the show actually sing the song. Like they don't have like a professional singer. It's Eva Gabor and Eddie Albert are actually singing that song. So Eddie Albert wants the farm life. Let's go, or his character, I don't remember what his character's name was, but that was the actor. Eva Gabor, his wife, whose name I also don't remember. I think it was Lisa. Yeah, okay, somebody knows it. <laughs> Somebody's Googling Green Acres right now. Okay. But she chimes in after that verse, right? And she goes, New York is where I'd rather stay. I get allergic smelling hay. I just adore a penthouse view. Darling, I love you, but give me Park Avenue. And then they alternate. Eddie Albert character goes, The chores. Eva Gabor goes, The stores. Fresh air, Times Square. And then he says, you are my wife. And she says, goodbye, city life. Green Acres, we are there. Now, you might have all kinds of ideas about what we should do with this field. But the bride of Christ needs to be able to say to her groom, like Eva Gabor's character, goodbye, city life. Green Acres, we are there. We have got to be elbow deep in the work of broadcasting seed, spreading the gospel. But the main point of this parable, again, is found in verse 18 when it says, 
Take care then how you hear. For the one who has, for to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. The flourishing and fruit bearing is not dependent on the skill of the sower or the quality of the seed, but rather the condition of the soil that receives it. And that's why Jesus says, take care then how you hear. Do you even care about the topic? Do Jesus' words fill you with an earnest, humble desire to understand his meaning? The point of verse 18 is to interpret what was happening in the four soils. Three times it comes true. Whoever does not have even what he thinks he has shall be taken from him. We see the soil, that, the seed that lands on the rocky ground, for example, and it springs up, and it seems to be growing and flourishing. It does not come to the point of fruit bearing. There's no fruit. But when the sun comes out and in time of trial, it, it kills the plant, and it's revealed that what we thought it had, even that is gone. It was not a true conversion. But one time, the fourth soil, the opposite comes true. Whoever has, to him more shall be given. A hundredfold return. If you hear with an honest heart, a good heart, a humble heart, then more will be given to you. Now, the ones along the path are those in whom the seed finds absolutely no purchase at all. The gospel truth that Jesus died for them on the cross, took for them all their sins, and gave him their righteousness, this amazing, precious, life-giving seed lands on their hearts and finds no purchase at all. The paths crisscross the fields in Judea, in ancient Israel, and people would walk, of course, and it would just pack the earth down. And it was in the sun, it would get baked hard. And seed that landed there, there was just no chance. It had no chance at all of growing. The shallow heart is a different matter, though. The seed lands there, and it responds immediately, but only superficially. This time of testing comes, and it always will. It always will. There's a kicking of the tires. Faith is tested. And they fall away. When I used to live in California, which I did for years, love California, um, it, during the springtime, especially this spring, because they had so much rain and snow over the winter, the hills are just beautifully green. There's wildflowers. I promise you, drive that same stretch of freeway in a month, it will just be brown, crispy brown everywhere. <laughs> It'll just be amazingly brown. Like there's no green at all. It's shocking. But what happens there is when the sun comes out, the roots don't go deep enough. There's not enough moisture in the soil. It just dies away to nothing. And so Jesus is speaking to somebody who, who loves the truth of the gospel. That It sounds great to them. But when a hard thing comes and they're hit with the, the whammy stick, their faith is tested, they let go of the gospel. It was never something that they had embraced truly before. 
John 8, 31 says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Hebrews 3, 3, 14, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. The Apostle Paul in Colossians 1, 23 says that one of the proofs of, an, of a sincere and an abiding faith is if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Now, I want to be very clear, and I can't take much time on this because I really do need to wrap this up. I am not saying a person can lose their salvation. But I am saying that the purpose of trials in a person's life is that they test and they reveal and refine what's there. One of the great benefits of a trial is they show what's true. And what Jesus is saying, Jesus says in John 16:33, in this world you will have trouble. It's going to happen. And what we see in the seed that falls on the shallow ground, the shallow-hearted person that has no root, is that when the trials come, as they inevitably will, and they kick the tires of their faith, they let go of it in that moment. So the, the test comes through trials, yes, but it also comes through a carrot. It's not just the stick, it's also the carrot. And that's the truth with the strangled heart. That's a heart that's choked out with rival affections. Uh, to such a person who loves this world, the gospel is a trespasser in such a heart. Weeds and thorns, they own that ground. Luke 16, 13 says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. Matthew 24, 12 through 13, Jesus said, And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. James 4, 4 says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, who wishes to, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. These verses make it plain <laughs> that we have to decide that for which we're living. We have to decide what is our greatest treasure. We cannot embrace the gospel while still holding on to the world. Weeds are a creeping killer. It does its work in time and by degrees. It competes for all that nurtures and, and grows the intended crop in the human heart. James Montgomery Boyce says this, he says, Above all, beware if you are saying to yourself, I need to provide for myself now. I'll think about spiritual things when I'm older. Beware if you think, I will do the work of the kingdom when I'm retired. Right now, I've got to make a living. Beware if you think to yourself, I'll be one person in one setting, but another in another setting. As though you can turn up devotion to Christ like a lamp, <laughs> like an old oil lamp. Turn it up and turn it down. Beware if you are allowing a love for the world or the things of the world to creep around the edges of your heart because it is opposed to what was sown there. 
And in time, it will be a, prove itself to be a creeping killer that chokes out the gospel. But lastly, we come to the open heart. It says, As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. And the question is, is your heart an open heart this morning? Are you receptive to God's truth? Do you allow it to settle down into your life and thinking so that it turns you from sin, directs your faith to Jesus, and produces the Holy Spirit's proof in your life? Maybe more importantly, what can you do? What can you do if it's not true? What if you have this horrible tendency in your life to get enthusiastic about spiritual things for a season, only to hit a rough patch and stop coming to church altogether? You have noticed a pattern in your life where you prefer many things to the things of God. You love them, you cherish them, you spend money on them and time with them. And you enter into the things of God with a spirit of duty. I must do it, but I don't want to. What do you do if your heart is hard to the things of God and it just finds at times no purchase at all? You just tune the pastor out. You move on. What can you do? I want you to know this. You can do nothing. That's a weird statement. <laughs> That's a weird thing for me to say, perhaps. We should all be desperate that something is done. You should be panicked if that's true of you. But what can you do? I will tell you what you must do. You must go to the, to the only one who can do anything about it and pour out your heart's concerns to him. The heart that receives the soil and bears a hundredfold is a soil that was prepared. God is such a one as hauls the rocks away and pulls the weeds. He turns the soil, he chops it up, he adds lime to it to make it sweet, as you farmers say up here. <laughs> he does everything that's needed to prepare the soil. And if God in this moment has given you clarity and sobriety, to see that something is desperately wrong with the condition of my heart's soil, in this moment of clarity that he's given you, cry out to him, cry out to him to do a work of preparation in your heart. God is not such a God as wants to hand you a to-do list. He does not tell you, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. He is not saying, get your act together. He is saying, come to me. Cry out to me. I am the one. I am the decisive agent of your salvation. And if in this moment you even care about this subject, recognize that for what it is. That God is doing a merciful work, an eye-opening work in your inner person. Recognize that as a gift from God. That you even care about what we're talking about this morning that it holds interest to you. For many, it does not. They just can't wait for me to get over. Some of you who even care just want this to be over. 
Can you break up the hard ground of your heart? Can you haul away the rocks? Can you put to death the weeds that are even now flourishing in your inner world? I submit to you, no, you cannot. But you're not, you're not a God, but you're not without a God. There is one to whom you can turn. You can ask him to do those things, and he will. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27 says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God will do these things if you would ask him to. This reminds me of that man, that prime example of a weedy heart, the rich young man from Luke 18 who walked away from Jesus sorrowful because he had great riches that competed with God for supremacy in his heart. After he walked away, Jesus remarked to his disciples how difficult it was for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And do you remember, in other words, how difficult is it for this thing to grow in a weedy patch of ground like that? Something just absolutely choked with love for the world. Do you remember how the disciples answered? They asked in response to this observation from Jesus, they said, who then can be saved? If that's true, Jesus, who even has a chance? Sometimes we give the disciples a hard time because they seem a little thick-headed. But let's give them credit in this interaction for possessing the wherewithal and insight to correctly address the problem. Who can do anything about that if that's true? All our hearts are full of these weeds. And then Jesus answers them, and his answer should be instructional to all of us. He says, what is impossible for man is possible with God. (laughs) You can't do it. You're right, but I can. And indeed, it is possible. It's possible for you to come to Christ and allow him to give you a heart that will receive the gospel. So take heed then how you listen, how you hear these things. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for our time together this morning. I thank you for this word. I thank you, Lord that you do not call us to shoulder the burden of our own salvation. But Jesus is the one who said to me, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. God, in Jesus we have found rest for our souls. Father, we thank you for being the master gardener who turns the soil who makes soft what was hard, who hauls away the rocks, gives a a rich, deep place for your word to find root and grow and flourish. Father, we thank you for being a God who through your word and through the inner working of the Holy Spirit puts to death the weeds 
that even now are growing and flourishing in our hearts. Father, we know that the difference between the one good soil and those other three soils was that the good soil brought fruit. And so, Father, I just pray, Lord, that you would make this church heavy with fruit. God, the branches of this place, God, would just be laden with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Good works would abound. God, give us hearts. Give us new hearts, we ask in Jesus' name.